one, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the show where we explore our guests' past and the music that anchors them to moments in their life. Our guest today is Kyle McCurry. Kyle is Assistant Vice President of Marketing and Communication at Florida Gulf Coast University. He's been a television journalist, a radio program director, and host of Classic Rock Insider, where he got to interview guests like Joe Perry, Mick Fleetwood, Huey Lewis, and Tommy James. He ended up becoming Tommy James's publicity and media relation manager after their meeting. Throughout his time reporting across the country, interviewing a slew of musicians, and connecting people for a living, Kyle has amassed a long list of stories, and Mike Canary finally convinced him to tell us three of them in the studio a couple weeks ago. So, here we go. Hey there, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm right. How are you? I'm doing really well. Do you miss radio? No. No? <laughs> no. Why not? What about I still, radio I makes still it have, so you don't miss it? Well, I was a programmer, so I still have night sweats sometimes about not oh. having the login on time. Hey. And so oh. I, I don't... People. <laughs> I do not... Uh, do you miss interviewing people on the radio? Um, no, because I still get to do it now. You know, I still do it through the PR side of things. Right. I don't necessarily always get to interview, you know, anybody that's come to my mind, but... Um, you know, there are still major people that come to universities. You get to meet those folks yeah, and, yeah. and talk to them. So, I mean, you know, I, I will say, though, when you when you learn how to interview on the radio it um, or in any any form, um, it makes you better as a PR person. <laughs> I believe that. Because the interviewing, knowing how to do it, knowing how to talk to people, knowing how to ask questions. I never – I don't know if you do this, but um, – I never wrote my questions down. I would prep. I would have notes that I wanted to wanted to come into. But I was reading Howard Stern's latest book, and he does. And I, that kind of surprised me. I come in with questions which may all get used or may not, none get mm. used, depending upon the flow that goes. That's you know? fascinating. Um, real quick before we get to the normal part of the show, your first radio station was WCU? WWCU. Oh, there was an extra W yeah, in there. Yeah. I thought you were just one G so- short of us. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, stead- It was uh, WCU uh, is the abbreviation or the initials for my alma mater, which is Western Carolina University. Understood. So I was the student general manager for, for that uh, student program coordinator and then the student general manager. And I ended up working there, I want to say it was like three and a half years, something to that effect. Gotcha. Is, yep. we- is Western Carolina in the western part of Northern Carolina? or the It is. Western it is. Western Carolina. Carolina University sits in a little area called Cullowee. So it's it's not too far from um, the eastern band of the Cherokee, uh, which is probably about 30 minutes. Uh, and Cullowee is just outside of a little area called Silva, North Carolina. Mm. So it's I know that place. Approximately about, and I would say it's about an hour from Asheville. Okay. Yeah. So you grew up near Asheville. Mm. Yes. So like suburban Asheville, or uh, 15 <laughs> minutes north, a little area called Weaverville. Okay. Um, and uh, I found out not too well. It's been a bit longer than this. Our family's on the original census for Buncombe County, which which is uh, the county that Asheville sits in. So there is a McCurry on that original census, so we're considered a first family of Buncombe County. Hmm. Now, what's fascinating is where that person lived is no longer in Buncombe County because they carved another county out of it. But um, uh, we've been in the mountains of North Carolina since, uh, we want to guess, somewhere late 1790s uh, to now. Holy cow. Yeah. What was the musical background of your childhood there in 
near Asheville. <laughs> um, Weaverville? Yeah, it was Weaverville. Uh, it depended on who I was in the car with. Um, you know, my father would listen to things like Randy Travis. I remember he had a, a duet tape called Heroes and Friends that he he played quite a bit. But he wasn't he wasn't really the strong musical type as much as you know maybe you would you would maybe pick up some stuff from the church or something because uh, my grandfather was a singer uh, so he would sing in church mainly you know hymns that you'd find in the Methodist church hymnal but um, it was it was primarily my mother and her brother where I got a lot of my tastes you know my my uncle would make mixtapes for my mother we weren't necessarily a very wealthy family so we would. Uh, you know, still have a car. You know, but of course, back then I guess everybody did. It was it was tape player. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, he would make us mixtapes, and you know, there are certain songs I remember being on there. Tequila was on there. Um, uh, Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, um, and then that sort of started my my real just fascination because I was, I was probably five or six. Huge fan of the Traveling Wilburys. Okay. And so, uh, but hey, it, hey, Kyle, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so for me, when I listen to mixtapes, uh, it started to build this thing in my head where when I hear the end of a song, whatever song comes on next, yes. right, is that's the song that comes on next. Right. So then if I hear the song in real life, like on the radio, I just expect to hear the other one. That's true. Are, are there any like that for you? Um, the cocktail soundtrack. Uh, Tom Cruise was <laughs> yeah. in. That was an excellent soundtrack. That was an excellent soundtrack. I um, spent some time with that. And and you know now and I'm on the spot because I can't remember the exact order. But I mean you know you had, um, I think there was a uh, you had Kokomo on there. I'm it pretty had sure. Tutti Fruity on it, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, Tutti Fruity. I'm going to pull this up because they're they're. This this deserves more recognition than I think it actually gets. I had a friend, uh, I still have him, but uh, he had a friend, Milty, who's been mentioned on this show before. He had a 1968 green Jeepster convertible, really, really loud sound system. For like three months, all we listened to was the cocktail soundtrack. It's a great soundtrack. So <laughs> so here are, here are the things. Uh, this also, you know, later on in life, I got to interview Kim Wilson of the Fabulous Thunderbirds. And the reason I knew who the Fabulous Thunderbirds were was because powerful stuff is on the cocktail soundtrack. Um uh, Wild Again by Jefferson Starship uh, was fantastic. Um, Kokomo, John Mellencamp does a great version of Rayvon. Yep. that's on that. Um, uh, there's a uh, I don't know the the artist's name, but there's another version of All Shook Up on there. Oh, I Love You So by Preston Smith, and then of course Tutti Fruity, as you mentioned, and the Georgia Satellite Hippie Shake. Yep, which I'm not a huge fan of that song, but my ringtone to this day is Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin, <laughs> yeah. and it's also on that uh, that. Co- we recently soundtrack. had that show, that song come to this show. Um, what was the first music you owned yourself? Uh, the very first one I can remember is Jim Croce's uh, Photographs and Memories. Uh, CD. That was the first CD I can remember having, um, and I, CDs were new at that point. So that original that CD is thicker, yeah, than later CDs. But um, that started my interest in Jim Croce and singer songwriters. Did you ever play any music instrumentally? My mother and grandmother put me through piano lessons, but it was one of those things where they said, um, you know, you can quit whenever you want. And so when I tried to quit, they then browbeat me. You know how much money we've spent on <laughs> yeah. piano lessons and. Um, First so, time you learned about duplicity from parents. <laughs> so I quit. I quit at the uh, at the recital. Oh wow! Ceremonially. <laughs> yeah, well, I just you know got up and tried to play a song that I hadn't practiced, and I just basically sat there at the piano and shook my head for a while, and then was like, "I'm done," and that was it. So you ever have nightmares of that moment? Not really. Um, it was. I knew it was one of those things. I knew it was finished with for a while, and uh, it just was something that I guess had become routine. Yeah, but. 
you know. Um, if you could learn an instrument instantly without trying, which would you choose? It would probably still be the piano. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I went into piano lessons, I wanted to play Billy Joel songs, and that was not possible. Uh, right. You know, you're still playing, like, I think one of the songs was like Mr. Penguin in the Snow or something, and it's like two notes the whole time. And I'm like, this is not what I am what I signed up for. It was the right way to start. And, you know, I, I believe the, the instructor was, was one of the more qualified people I'd ever met, but it was just not, it wasn't my bag. Understood. Okay, let's get to your first song. Okay. Which is? From Jim Croce. Yeah, I got a name. And I believe this was also the theme song for The Last American Hero for uh, Junior Johnson. Uh, there, so um, it was funny. I thought about this later, um, and we'll double-check this. But The Greatest American Hero? Uh, I think it was The Last American last, Hero. I don't know what uh, The Last American Hero is. Let's put a pin in this just one second. Uh, last American Hero theme song. I'm pretty sure. And there's a story to this. There's a couple of stories to this. Because I know Junior, our new Junior as well, briefly. Are you talking about the movie The Last American Hero? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That the, that it's was the theme? Yeah. How no, no, I've never heard no, of this movie. Mike said he didn't know what it was. I have no idea what it is. It's uh, Jeff Bridges. I know who yep, he is. he's right. <laughs> he was Starman. <laughs> he was Starman. Uh, I'm just looking to see if I got a name. Was Am I right on this before we go down to the story? Because it's not going to make sense otherwise. Sorry, folks. They won't hear that. Or maybe they will. Um, We can't cut out my Starman <laughs> reference. <laughs> I think, you, I think I'm like, right on this, like, though. I think Last I'm American right. Hero soundtrack. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Kyle, I just appreciate that you're actually doing some research, too, because usually we're back here Googling and doing different things. So yeah, we usually, yeah, teamwork we in usually the research in, right now. employ Jared the intern for much. <laughs> well, at least, at least uh, you know, on the official resource of Wikipedia, it says the film's theme song, I Got a Name, sung by Jim Croce, okay. became a best-selling single. So. I didn't realize this. Yeah, when it's I, on it. It's on it. Okay. So I didn't realize this when I got it. So uh, The Last American Hero was the name for Junior Johnson that Tom Wolfe, the writer for Esquire, dubbed him. And Junior Johnson was this genius mechanic from the hills of North Carolina, primarily a little area called Wilkesboro. And he was the one that came up with the concept of drafting. So two cars behind each other. Right on. And... Uh, and was an excellent driver in his own right, won, won uh, the 1960 Daytona 500, of which I have a picture with him in front of in his house in North Carolina. Uh, he's since passed, but um, I bring him up because it's this is an important thing to kind of talk about uh, where this where this song li- lays for me in, in the kind of history of things. When I was in high school, there was this moment where I realized you could – get things to happen if you just take the time to ask. A lot of people don't think about that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was doing a history project, I believe it was, in AP. And there's there's probably a discrepancy in the calendar. This happened twice. One of them was an English class where I talked to a couple of really excellent journalists that kind of set me forward on, on that. But then for this AP U.S. history class, we were told to do a history of something. And so I found out that there was a racetrack called the Asheville-Weaverville Speedway that sat where my high school was built on top of. Okay. And it was the site of this great riot. Well, no, it probably wasn't great, but it was a riot in the 50s. The fans were upset because the track started to break up, and they basically blocked the drivers into this racetrack. And so there that day was Junior Johnson, who was named the winner of that race, Uh, Ned Jarrett, who went on to become a broadcaster, and his sons, Dale Jarrett, who won a championship, um, Richard Petty was there, a number of others. So I read about all this, and 
I picked up the phone and called, I believe it was Hickory Motor Speedway, and asked if they had a number for Ned Jarrett, and they just gave it to me. <laughs> so I called, and Ned Jarrett was still on the on television at that time, and he answered the phone. And I'm like, here I am. I'm watching this guy on TV every weekend. Now I'm on the phone with him. Told him who I was and what I wanted to do, which was to videotape an interview with him, and he agreed. And then I said, do you have numbers for Junior Johnson? Or Harry Gant, which was another driver, not necessarily connected to Asheville Weaverville, but had made his name at the new Asheville Speedway. He gave me those numbers, and um, which I really appreciated. And I went on one weekend randomly, or during the week, I can't remember exactly when, interviewed Ned at his house in Hickory, interviewed Junior on his tractor in Wilkesboro, and I kept wanting Richard Petty. And eventually he gave me an interview, and then so did Harry Gant. So I got a name, had more presence in my life than I realized because Junior Johnson was absolutely a legend. I mean, to this day, if you if you talk about his name uh, around people who are in that sport, they're going to tell you how revered this guy is. But then on the flip side, I got a name always sort of stood for the, the pride I had in, in being a McCurry and being a – a hunt singer and a Moffat uh, in that part of North Carolina, and that's you know different family names. And uh, to have that song um, on that first album that I got was pretty significant because you know there's, I don't know if you've ever listened to Photographs and Memories by Jim Croce. Not that, the whole thing. The greatest no. hit. It's amazing songs on there, but the um, the song itself really speaks to you know who you are. Uh, you know, and there's there's some others on there. New York's not my home. I'm definitely playing that when I left New York. Uh, so you know, there's the, you know I like to I like to play songs when I'm in specific locations that sort of help me remember those spaces. And so, um, Croce seems to always kind of hit the hit the nail on the head. Well, let's listen to it. What did your uh, What did your teacher think of you? Like, well, here's a here's a history project, and look, teacher, I interviewed all these famous race people. I remember them being a bit shocked, but you know the the thing was, it was the year that this happened was also 2001. And I was in that class and during 9 11. Uh, it was a very, it was a, it was a messed up year to huh. say the least. But um, um, I think the, the problem is most people, and even today it's starting to wane a bit. If you talk to them and they've never followed racing, Richard Petty's probably the most familiar, um, or an Earnhardt or something to that effect. Um, but uh, you know, for me, it was always, it was always the people I knew had done some pretty significant things that uh, were the most interesting to me, at least. Let's listen to this. This is I Got a Name by Jim Croce from the 1973 album of the same name. Whenever I listen to his music, I always think, what would he have been making if he hadn't died when he died? Because just for the uninformed listener, that song was released as a single on the day after he died in a plane crash, right? It. it uh, I asked Tommy about this one time, and, you know, he. I don't know that he ever met him, but, you know, it's it's... It was always wonderful to me to have access to somebody who'd, who'd met some of these folks we lost way too soon. And uh, Croce, you know, I, I should say that Croce was a big part of my childhood, too, because my mother had photographs and memories on a record. And so we would listen to Don't Mess Around With Jim and all these different songs in the house. So had it not been for, you know, my uncle making the mixtapes, but my mother taking the time to play them. I mean, we listened to those songs nonstop. And Croce was just still a big part of it even even you know you'll you'll pick up on what i love about it is i don't you know i i can't say that i know his entire catalog but i know quite a bit of it and um i remember i was standing at a 
at an event at a place I used to work, and somebody was playing the tune to box number 10. I don't know if you've ever heard that song that he did. But uh, when you know, you know, it's a Croce song, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And it just, he was just a phenomenal artist, so I really appreciate the fact that my my mother took the time to introduce me to people like that. Because, you know, you don't know. I think the foundation for a lot of folks is whatever music they listen to. I think that kind of helps build who they are. And um, I was pretty lucky. I heard a lot of things that were made long before I was ever even thought of. And uh, thankfully, it uh, it helped me a lot later on in life for sure. You know, I have a similar sort of uh, story as far as like – in the early days of the internet, I read a book by a guy named Christopher Phillips. He came to class for Glenn mm-hmm. Winehouse's thing. And I looked him up and he had a website and an email address. And I sent him an email. And we became friends. And we're mm-hmm. still friends to this day. And that kind of is like a light bulb where it's like, oh, well, if you just reach out and you communicate clearly and you're polite, sometimes it'll just turn into conversations. And then you kind of then leveraged that into all the things that you ended up doing next, right? The class that I teach, I've, I've, um, I, sold, I told my students – not too long ago, education will open the door to a lot of people. Uh, radio does too when you've, when you've got media. But students have this amazing opportunity to connect with people who are doing – who are at the top of their game. I, I think most folks like sharing the knowledge that they've gained. It, you know, it's sort of this lasting legacy or whatever it may be that they, that they leave a little bit of themselves after they're gone – and, you know, even just in the class, I mean, we've had people from CNN who's come to talk to the class. We've, you know, Bill Weir, for example, came in and talked about, uh, it was Zoom, but he used a, a period of time where he was on vacation to talk to my students about uh, a documentary that he'd made about growing up in Wisconsin because we had gotten to know each other. And um, it's pretty amazing that these kind of things are able to happen, but often people just don't ask. Who was the first musician you got to interview? The very first. Technically, it's probably Charlie Daniels. Okay. <laughs> um, it was a very strange interview that I can recall. I mean, there may have been a few random um, people in early, but he's the one I remember. Um, but it was a dual interview. There was somebody else doing the interview, so I didn't really have a lot of control over it. So I always wanted to redo that one. Right. Charlie ended up being somebody that I talked to a few times, and, and I actually got to meet him a few times. He's a fascinating guy, and you know he was on Dylan's Nashville Skyline. He was a musician on on that album, and just a really. First of all, he's a Tar Heel as well, so he's you know he he was known for being a Tennessee guy with Rocky Top and all these things, but he was actually from I believe Wilmington, and uh, he had a affinity for the Marshall Tucker Band, and you know if you go back and you look at Southern Rock. Uh, he told me this one time the original Southern Rock groups that he he laid out were the Almond Brothers. Charlie Daniels Band, Marshall Tucker Band, Wet Willie, and I believe he said Leonard Skinner. So those were the five originals in his mind. I'd have to go back and and double-check my notes. But, um, you know, he started it, and then the next one was Jimmy Hall, who was the lead vocalist for Wet Willie. I don't know if you remember that band. I do not remember Wet Willie. They did a song called Keep On Smiling. And Jimmy's now... I believe this is still true. He's the band leader for Hank Williams Jr., but also the vocalist for Jeff Beck. Oh, okay. Jimmy's got this just amazing voice, and um, I feel very, very grateful that I've gotten to see him live as many times as I have. One of the best shows you'll ever see if you get a chance to see Jimmy Hall. How many concerts have you seen? A lot. Um, 
I don't know that it's any more than anybody else. And any, I, I like a lot of like little club shows and stuff like that. Who's the biggest act you've seen in a small venue? If you don't know his music, it may not sound this, but I, I saw Victor Wooten. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's he's um, Bela Fleck, Bela Fleck guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, ask me if he's ever been. Oh, Kyle, have you ever been to the Orange Peel? Speaking of Asheville, I, a couple of times. W- with that answer to that question, I saw the Smashing Pumpkins on their first reunion tour at the that very venue. That's, so that's yeah. always what that's I think of when I hear Asheville. Dylan played there. Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> wow. played there. But the best the best show I ever saw in Asheville was Victor Wooten. At the Masonic Temple. That's amazing. He's the bass player. Right? Yeah. yeah, he's a fantastic bass Was he wearing an X Men shirt? I don't know if he was or not, but you know, on my wall in the house, I have a, an album that he signed, and uh, it uh, it was this very you, you it was it was you know quite costly. I paid for this ticket uh, and for my friend's ticket, and you got you know a chance to do a kind of a chill out and talk kind of session with but it was so relaxed his daughter was there she sang it was a very intimate wow. show but it was i've always loved his music and um you know the the other act that i i went and saw quite a bit um at a at a place called the handlebar which no longer exists in in uh, greenville south carolina it was the robin trower band i don't know if you know who robin trower is but um Really great rock and roller. Uh, at one point, he was a part of Procol Harum, but um, most of his stuff has been sort of solo ever since or with the band itself. And just a really, really great ro- uh, rock and roller. The song that I would suggest you listen to is Two Rolling Stoned. Why don't you pull that up, Jared? We can listen to some of it. I'm looking at the Sorry, list. we were we were showing him Victor Wooten. Oh, okay. You, you guys weren't paying we attention to what you're saying. We had to introduce him to who this was. Yeah. <laughs> Robin Trower's Two Rolling Stones, a great song. So I've got the uh, the the list of the people who you've interviewed here, which is, mm-hmm. is long and contains lots of names. Were any of them in particular ones that made you feel starstruck, or did you ever get starstruck? Can I see the list? Yes. <laughs> it's two pages. It is 15 point font, but there's probably 50, 60 names on there. There were some that were just really, they were personal for different reasons. Like I remember when I was talking to Neil Sean from Journey, we talked so long that he actually said in the interview, man, I'm late for sound check. I've got to go, <laughs> which was, a, you know, I just thought was a neat thing. Um, Kim Wilson talked to me for like two hours. Hmm. It was it was just a very lengthy conversation, but I enjoyed it. Um, I, always, I always enjoyed the times I got to talk to Eddie Money. You know, he was... He was very um, energetic and uh, seemed to really enjoy doing interviews. Uh, Peter Frampton was the same way. Um, probably the one that that was that I still remember to this day being being meaningful was Doug Gray, the Marshall Tucker Band. You know, you got the Marshall Tucker Band, who basically their entire band is gone, but the voice is still around, Doug, and. I remember one of the conversations I had with him. He was sitting there with his wife, and he talked about that. It was like you know, you get these folks on the phone, and it was always phone interviews. You know, I was in, I was either in Cullowhee or I was in Elmira, New York, and they're not, they're not there most of the time. And so, you know, we'd always do phone interviews. And uh, I just remember Doug being a really great guy. Um, I know that. Uh, let me just look through this list here for a second. I was I talked to Mick Fleetwood on a Thanksgiving night in 2009. Uh, Robbie Krieger was funny, really nice guy. Of course, from the Doors. Charlie was 
he did, he put out this album one time called Deuces, and I remember complimenting him on the fact that if you've ever seen this album cover, he's in this really cool white suit. And you don't usually see Charlie Daniels looking this way. He looked very dapper, and I remember complimenting him on it. And it just it sort of changed the the flow of the interview at that point. And I remember his comment at the end was, thanks for the interview, and I enjoyed it. And, you know, you didn't – you wouldn't necessarily always hear that. Yeah. Um, so it was it was something you appreciated. Um I'm just looking. I don't want to go through the whole list, but do you ever have any? Do you have any tricks to try to get them uh, to get their attention? Because you know these people have been interviewed so many times, you have to you have to get to them somehow. Yeah, uh, you mean actually get them to respond? Well, yeah, just you know to, to to get them to take you more seriously than okay, I'm doing another interview. You've got me for 18 minutes. I found it was much easier once I had a list gone. Because I would just include the list. Gotcha. I would just say, I've interviewed up, this person, you this had person, some, this person. some this cover person. based on your – Absolutely. Uh, yeah. um, but you know, the fun ones were like Bobby Elliott of the Hollies, which you may not know, but Bobby Elliott was the drummer of the Hollies. And he would tell me what it was like to be the drummer of yeah. the Hollies. And the Hollies were a strange band, right? You had like Bus Stop and – and Carrie Ann, but then you also had Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. The band sounded totally different. You don't even know it's the same group. Yeah. But they were a great band. I mean, you had somebody like Graham Nash who was in that group. So, you know, you, it was fun talking to some of these folks. And, and the truth be told, there were – they were probably the only ones I could I could acquire, you know, the ability to talk to. At right. That yeah. Point. Yeah. But I didn't really care. What yeah. I what, the reason this started this this interview series started was because WWCU had a classic hits format, and while I had grown up with the music, I didn't I didn't feel comfortable being the guy talking about music to people who grew up with it as if I was an expert on it when I knew I wasn't. So I figured the way that I could do that. And have some fun at the same time. We'll see if some of these people would talk to me. And, uh, you know, I'll rem- I remember the conversation with Roger Hodgson of Supertramp. Um, there was a, another song that came out at that point from Gym Class Heroes that was taking a piece of one of his songs. And that's how I made it uh, something that the students would would find interesting because I was trying to connect it that this music existed before Gym Class Heroes decided to do something with it. And I forget the song they used, but but you know, it, it was I was always try to find those those things if they existed. Yeah. And they didn't always necessarily exist, but but you would try. Hmm. Jared Jared wants to weigh in on the one that's highlighted. Oh, Otis Williams. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh that's one thing I want to say. Um before that, I remember a story that you would that you told during class about you asked some artists what their favorite song was, and they oh, told you that, that yeah. you should never ask an artist that. That was a great lesson. Um, Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis? Huey Lewis. I've heard of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Huey Lewis, I asked him, what's your favorite song? And I was, I was a novice. Nobody taught me how to be an interviewer. And he goes, with all due respect, that's a horrible question to ask an artist because we wrote them all, and they're all our favorite songs. And I was... Uh, Admittedly, I was not um, taking the hint as much as I should have at that point <laughs> because then I said, well, you know, what would you play for the Queen of England? And he oh, goes, God. we're not here for a good time. We're here for a long – we're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time is the song he said we play. So that's how I got the answer. But, you know, as I've looked back on that conversation, I greatly appreciate the fact that he did that. Yeah. I didn't recognize it in the moment, but I did get it later. Hmm. And uh, – he sang during that interview. Uh, he was putting out a, a beach music album at the time, and um, so it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, Huey Lewis was a it was a it was a it was a cool thing to get to talk to him, but it was also um, 
for me, a big lesson. So, <laughs> would you mind uh, explaining how it was to uh, interview Otis Williams? Yeah, he, you know, he um, he agreed to do it, and on my prep for that, I didn't have time to read the book. Uh, did you so see the Temptations? Uh, wa- that's what I did. I watched the documentary the, yeah. or the VH1 uh, miniseries. The yeah, the miniseries. Yeah, to prep for that. And we talked about a number of things from that. And I, you know, really basically just kind of retold his story uh, in that interview. But it was uh, it was really wild to get it firsthand. And that was it was like 09, 08. Wow. No, it was earlier than that. It was like 07 probably was when I did that. So it was good. Yeah, uh, Otis Williams just turned 80 uh, this past month. And the tents are celebrating 60 years. And I got to see, like, some interviews with him live mm. or whatever. And he just he seems like a cool dude to talk to. Yeah, you know, I mean, and that, that miniseries was pretty <laughs> – wasn't necessarily kind to Otis either. I yeah. mean, there were moments where Otis didn't get um, – Ain't nobody come to see you, Otis. Exactly. That was one of the, that was one of the lines. But it was, yeah. it, was, uh, it was a cool thing to get to do. The, the, the other thing I'll say – Hearing somebody like Ian Gillen tell you about the creation of Smoke on the Water and kind of breaking down the lyrics for you to let you realize, especially for somebody who didn't realize this, that Smoke on the Water was about the making of the Machine Head record. You know, we all went down to Montreux on the Lake Geneva shoreline. They were sitting there in a Rolling Stones mobile recording studio. And at the same time, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention were playing this venue over there. And, and it, here it says it in the song. Some person with a, or I think he says some stupid with a flare gun uh, burns the place to the ground. Smoke on the water. Well, it was actually what they saw. The whole building burnt down and then the smoke just kind of <laughs> hung above the water. And that's how they wrote that song. But to hear him yeah. tell you that story, you're just like, you don't miss being on the radio at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get on to your second song. I just want a real quick anecdote. In my early days of interviewing people, I had a chance to interview Barry Williams, who played Greg Brady, and I had 12 minutes. It was a junket, and I'm like, this guy's been interviewed a gazillion times. How am I going to get to him? So my first question was, when was the last time you were asked a question in an interview you've never been asked before? And he paused, and he went, well, until that one, it's probably been 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good feeling when they say something like that. Yeah, isn't it? well, that's what I meant. And then it seems like then we could just have this conversation like I got to him, you know. Yeah, yeah. So It was, it was pretty fantastic. It really was. Okay, second song, Distant Thunder. Yeah. What's the story or would you like to listen? I'll tell the story and we can probably come back and say a little bit more about it. Um, you know, I'm in public relations because of one person. And that is a woman by the name of Carol Ross. And Carol Ross was the one who granted my original interview with Tommy James. And Carol was and, and still is one of the best minds in rock and roll publicity. And she is Tommy James' manager. And I forget what her title is. It's probably vice president of something. But um, and his company is called Aura Entertainment. And so when I met Carol, she just seemed – excited that somebody in college was interested in Tommy's music. And um, it, one thing led to another, and sh- and it was between Tommy and Carol that they asked me to start working for him. And um, it was – I would have never gone into PR had it not been for her. Um, 
And I feel very blessed that I learned public relations from what I would call an old school publicist. I mean, this is somebody who had represented Kiss. She had represented uh, a number of artists on the MCA record label. She worked for Rogers and Cowan for years. I mean, the, the artist list, like I've seen a picture of her with Keith Moon watching The Price is Right. I mean, <laughs> this woman knew everybody. And, um, and so, I, you know, I'm forever grateful to her. Uh, and it, and it got me close to Tommy. You know, I did that first interview, and that was a really, really special thing. But um, after I moved from North Carolina to New York to take a uh, program director's job at WNGZ, uh, I was still working for Tommy uh, part-time. And um, I was I guess it was July 4th 2009 maybe maybe it was 2010 can't exactly remember and uh I had my cousin in town and I I was planning on going to a concert on the Jersey uh on the border between Jersey and Philly and um I said all right well on our way there we'll stop off and check in with Tommy and uh so I stopped off at Tommy's house and he says, something I want you to hear. And he sat me down in his uh, living room there, and he played this song. And so I'll, I'll, we'll stop there, and then I'll tell you the rest of the story after we play the song. All right. This is uh, Distant Thunder by Tommy James from his album Alive. So when you say he played it for you, like a demo or like on a guitar or? Well, he played, there's two versions. Uh, There was a version he released, I think, in the 70s, and then there's a new version that he was working on. At the time, I think he was considering maybe putting it in the live show. But, you know, um, I think I should say this. It's, it's, It's fascinating being a college student and being somebody new into the industry. And, you know, when you go to New York, you're going to Tommy's house, and he's taking a limo into the city to get you around. Um, it was a very different, different experience. Something I wasn't, I wasn't uh, accustomed to at all in my yeah. humble upbringing in the mountain of North Carolina. Um, but it, you know, we we it was it was there were these these very cool moments where you know he was just being himself, letting us hear what he was doing. And you know, imagine you're sitting in his living room. And on the walls are all of his records, gold or whatnot, um, for all the hits that he's had. I mean, you know, this is the same guy that did I Think We're Alone Now and Crimson and Clover and Crystal Blue Persuasion and and Hanky Panky and all these different tracks. And uh, he wanted me to hear this. And um, fast forward a few years later, he was in the studio somewhere else in New Jersey. I couldn't get you back there now if I had to. Uh and he'd re-recorded this song. And uh, there's actually a photo of Tommy and I together in that studio. I'm wearing a leather jacket. Uh, that was the day he played that new track uh, for me. And, uh, you know, I, I remember Carol was so excited that I was back. We had lunch together in the uh, in the side room of the studio. And, you know, they, they became a, a, a second uh, family for me in a lot of ways. And, you know, later on... Uh, Tommy and uh, and his road manager and co-author for his um, autobiography, Martin, helped uh, another group that I was working with secure their first show in New York at the Bitter End. And uh, you know, having Tommy in the audience with also uh, Gene Cornish of the Rascals watching this female trio, Underhill Rose, 
play at the bitter end for the first time was a cool thing. There's actually a, there's actually a story out there about it because there was a writer from North Carolina where this trio was in New York at the time, hmm. and they interviewed Tommy about seeing this group for the first time. And it, I just I had an absolute blast. It was uh, very different, not something I thought I was going to get to do, but. Um, you know, you, you don't get the opportunity to learn from people who've been that successful directly very often. Yeah. But I not only had Tommy, but I had Carol. I had Martin, who we lost recently. Ed, uh, who um, for the longest time helped Tommy produce his radio show on Sirius XM and, and was the business guy. Ira, there were all these, these um, really great people in this close-knit little group that welcomed me in with open arms and uh, – you know, I don't think I would have nearly the success in public relations that I've had had it not been for that team. But by and large, far and away, Carol Ross deserves most, if not all, of the credit for that because she really did pull me under her wing and, and help me grow. So, um, How do you listen to music these days? Yeah, primarily streaming. Um, you know, I've got a number of Alexas in my home, so I'll just tell it to play whatever I want to hear, and I, I build playlists. When was the last time you bought music that had physical form? It was probably the last time I was in, I was at a show for one of the members of Underhill Rose. I ran into Eleanor Underhill, and I bought her CD. That's probably the last time. She put out a solo CD, and I bought that. How long ago was that? A couple of years, maybe three, three more years than that um yeah that probably is the last one and then before that it was probably the other member of the band molly's album so that was probably the last two that i that i purchased when was the last time you listened to music on fm broadcast this morning okay so you okay you listen to radio stations in Mm -hmm. your car Mm -hmm. well one i'm not going to tell you which one it's not yours (laughs) sorry i like listening to music in the morning but i like bob fm Uh, i listen yeah yeah. well bob fm's got it all yeah I I, i really i really enjoy that uh uh, just the mix that they have, and so you'll hear all kinds of random stuff, but that's what I listen to in the morning. If you ever get near the downtown Fort Myers area, there's a low-power station out of Dunbar High School called, called the Tiger FM, 93.3, okay. Okay. and they've got some kind of nonprofit license because it just plays everything. That's cool. I mean, it's like Bob FM plays everything, but you still know all the songs. The Tiger. They've, they've still got a playlist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, this still, one, this still one a plays songs telling. where I'm constantly saying, hey, phone, what song is this? And yeah, it's like yeah, some yeah, yeah. person I've never even heard yeah. of, but it sounds like something I would want to listen to. I, lo- I love those kind of moments. I will tell you where I have that moment the most. I, I uh, became a fan of the TV show Lucifer. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack for that series was phenomenal. Got all kinds of thumbs up in the booth. Yeah, that soundtrack. I said, mm-hmm, like I the knew what it was. The actor who played Melvin Franklin on the Temptations docu series is in that show. Yeah, fun it, fact. Yeah, it, it is a it, the 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 music coordinator, whatever their title is for that show, is phenomenal. They find stuff I've never heard, and I love it. Love their music. Um, do you ever listen to music at work? Only if I'm playing a song for somebody to hear. Uh, but you don't have not, like on in your office while you're no. doing emails. I'm typically watching news as part of the office day. Do you ever have any part in music being brought to campus, or does that not at all in any way fall under your department? I would like to. Um, 
and there have I have made some suggestions, but it's never it's never happened. So um, I can't say that I do. I can say I've I've made some suggestions, and that's been about it. I've I've had a I've had, played a part in a couple of speakers that have come, but um, nobody musically. Do uh, stage musicals do anything for you? <laughs> um, probably the video versions of the stage musicals. Um, there is a, I won't say the title, but uh, my grandmother, bless her heart, uh, she passed away in 2019. When I was about five years old, she gifted me the first gift I can remember her giving me. And I know she'd bought a bunch of stuff before this, but I even mentioned this at her eulogy. There was a uh, stage show that became a movie that starred Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. And the, the kind word of it is the best little cat the, house in Texas. Yeah, I know the yeah, one you yeah. mean. Five years old, I get that on tape. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, it, uh, it made me a lifelong fan of Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was thrilled when, when Tommy got to duet with her on a, I think it was Crimson and Clover that they did together. Uh, but... I didn't get to meet her, so I was I was upset about that. But uh, so yes, for that, my mother also had me watch um, um, Little Shop of Horrors, which was you know a great off Broadway play that became a, a movie. And uh, there's a really wonderful um, sh- movie documentary now on Disney Plus. I think it's I think the man's name is Howard Sherman, who was a part of the 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 group that. Created the music for Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. He was also responsible for Little Shop of Horrors, and uh, just it's it's amazing how you come across these um, these people who have had so much influence on your life, and you don't realize they're the same folks, right? That the that they're responsible for music that you enjoyed in different right. spots, but you don't realize it's the same people. But it happens probably more than you realize. You've been in town how long? Four years? Almost four. It'll be four January 16th. Have you gone and seen anything at like Barber B. Man or Broadway Palm or anything like that? I is am. That part this, of is gonna, this is going to sound so bad. Um, I was talking to my uh, one of my coworkers today about this. Uh, I am very much a university and home person. That's I am too. Yeah. If it wasn't for my daughter, I wouldn't go anywhere else. <laughs> and the only time I do go anywhere, it's if, if one of the faculty members invite me to, to get a drink or something, and that's rare. Um, not because they don't want to, but oftentimes I've got a Scottish Terrier puppy, and so you know I've got to go pick him up from doggy daycare and all this stuff. So you know your life revolves around the dog at that point. Um, doggy daycare. Oh, do you yeah. take him to this place up here on Treeline? No, my place is up closer to the Cape, um, okay. but it's just phenomenal. Um, but the um, – you know the 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 thing about um, the thing about this area is I swore up and down that I would never live in Florida. Like it was the state. Had on you my been list. here to go? Oh yeah. It? Okay. So. My parents brought me to Daytona like every vacation, uh-huh. year after year after year. And I am not a fan of humidity at all, and I'm still not a fan of humidity. I cannot stand it. And uh, you know, so it was. Definitely not on my list of priorities to come here. And I, I thought the last time I would ever enter the state of Florida was in 2014 when I covered the NASCAR championship in Miami. I thought that was it. I drove back and I figured, okay, I'm never coming to Florida again. And then this job popped open and something told me, you know, as I started looking at this university, and really what really pushed me over the edge was when I saw that Mike Martin had decided to become president here and I saw his background LSU, Colorado State, 
uh, New Mexico State, and he'd been vice presidents in other places. Figured if if he's not going to retire, and he thought this place was decent enough to come and spend some time, hmm. um, did I, you ever tell him that? I have. I, I got to <laughs> uh, the the feature in this in this edition of the magazine is a conversation that I conducted with him, and I wrote the piece. Um, but during that conversation, it doesn't make it into the written piece. But I did tell him that, and uh, I remember him saying something like, "That's nice. I really appreciate that," or something to that effect. But um, you know, it uh, that's what made me decide that this place was worth. A second look. Um, I'm just thrilled that I was in the finalists and was able to make make the move. And it really wasn't a you know I wasn't in a position where I had to go anywhere. But um, it's been a it's been a pretty amazing thing. So when people ask me why I'm here, it really is the job. That's that's why I'm here. You hate being outdoors, otherwise <laughs> <laughs> mowing the yard in Florida in the summer is not the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Though I do still mow my own yard. So. Well, yeah, I grew up here. I know all about that. Yeah. Um, okay, it's time for your third song. Okay, um, there's a number of stories connected to this third song, and so we'll tell some and then some of the others. But I think, I think probably the best place to start is if you've ever driven out west. And, and I think back to places like one time I did a trip between Cheyenne and where and Laramie. And, you know, I said before, I like songs that sort of help me remember. So when I drove between Cheyenne and Laramie, I was playing Garth Brooks, the beaches of Cheyenne. Right. Um, I was always looking for music that would just help me remember the moment in a different way. And sometimes music, even if it's not a part of the moment, still becomes a part of the moment. Yep. Strange how that works. That's the that's the engine of this show. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, it, and and this this song in particular has a, a couple of those as well. Um, but I was I, I in 2015 I got in this kick where I wanted to drive cross country. I'd always wanted to do it. I had no desire to have anybody with me. Uh, but I had I have a dear friend of mine, still my best friend to this day from high school, who now lives in uh, Utah and has been there since 2008. So I knew that could be my endpoint. That I could drive to Utah and then then turn around and also have a free place to stay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Um, but uh, it um, it was this moment where I I said, okay, the second time I was going to go, first time I took the the route Nebraska through Wyoming down into Utah. Well, the next time I went, he was living temporarily in Montana, so I took the route of going uh, Nebraska Iowa up into the Dakotas and then over into Montana. And this in particular song played after a, a I, don't, I won't say it was necessarily a meaningful conversation, but it was just knowing that I had my grandmother there to talk to at whatever time it was. It was, you know, it was probably 11 or 12 o'clock her time. But to have a, a meaningful person to have a conversation with, telling her what I was seeing, because she, I think the most she ever saw was maybe Georgia. I think she might have gone to Florida at one, but she'd never been out west. But, you know, when you're driving toward Rapid City in South Dakota, you're just seeing a lot of nothingness. It's occasional light in the, in the skyline or off the side of the road where, you know, somebody's living down there and you're wondering what they're doing. But um, this song in particular played right after that conversation. Now, that was pretty fitting. Um, and there's, there's other things that connect me to this song, but this, this is a very strong memory from this track. What kind of car were you driving in? We really want to picture it. Uh, 2013 Chevrolet Cruze. Okay. Let's hear it. This is Garth Brooks, When You Come Back to Me Again, off his 2001 album, Scarecrow. 
Something about Garth Brooks music when you're driving out west, it just really works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, of course, he wrote most of his stuff, I think, thinking about the west. But mm-hmm. it's good stuff. It really is. When's the last time you were on a road trip? Well, I drive back and forth a lot to North Carolina. So, you know, I guess you count that. It's about a 12-hour drive. But what about going somewhere you don't need to go just so you can go? It's been a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, whenever you live far away, your your vacation time becomes trips back home, which is the same way it was in Elmira. So the only real time I had to travel was when I was back living in North Carolina because I could actually use the time at that point to do it. I will say that uh, – you know, that that song, and you may have been getting ready to get to this, but while I'm thinking about it, that song, as I mentioned, or sort of uh, foreshadowed earlier, it becomes connected to events that may not have ever actually been played around, but it, it sort of reminds me of these things. I did something uh, in 2017 that I will forever be glad that I did. My grandfather was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I made the decision to interview him before he passed. And it was the best thing I ever did. Uh, I asked him things that nobody had ever heard him talk about. Some hard questions. How did he feel about certain things? Um, I remember my grandmother listened to it before she passed, and she told me he talked about things she didn't even know. Um, So that song ends up becoming, I just got a lot louder there all of a sudden. Something happened? Everything got much louder. Much louder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had a similar conversation with my my other grandfather, A.C. Uh, McCurry. So the first was Donald Hunsinger, and then he passed away. And then I ended up losing the remaining three of my grandparents by the end of 2020. So I lost him in 2017. His wife died in 2019. And then my dad's parents passed in March and June or July of the next year. And around the time that my uh, grandfather Hunsinger was was dying, uh, the other grandfather had a heart attack. And we thought, here we are worried about this grandfather, and now this one's had this heart attack. So I was responsible for keeping him company a lot of the time. So I would end up staying with him at his house in there. My grandparents had these recliners next to each other. So I'd sit in hers and he would sit in his and we'd sleep there uh, just to kind of, he'd had to have chest compressions and stuff. So it was really difficult for him to lay down. And I had a similar conversation with him that I had with the grandfather that I had recorded the interview with. And so for whatever reason, this song is just kind of, you know, that's what I think about when I, when I, uh, hear this this song or those two conversations. Can't say that I ever really had um, that kind of concluding conversation with my McCurry's grandmother. You know, I was, and then then my mother's mom uh, really started forgetting who she was over time, and I wasn't as close to her as I was whenever she was herself. So it it um, it's good though that. I always felt like I was a good grandson, and I always felt like I was really, really close to all of them. And so that's something you can hang your hat on, I think, is that you you made sure that they they were appreciated while they while they were around. And, and I, um, I think that's a lot of credit to my mother and and father because they made sure we had close relationships with our grandparents. And so I guess you know over time the song kind of manifests itself and becomes sort of representation representative of my parents now, right? Because mm. 
I'll never forget, I, I got to know um, folk singer Janice Ian a little bit. And one of the things she told me, she has a, a foundation called the Pearl Foundation. It was something she created in honor of her mother. And she told me at one point that, you know, once you lose your parents, that's a that's a special club, is what she said, that those who don't have their parents anymore. And, you know, here I am, 36 going on 37, and I'm looking down that, you know, I've got the parents. That's basically it now. Um, my, my mother had her Great, had her grandmother until she was in her 40s, almost 50, right? So I was really hopeful that I'd have them a bit longer than I did, but um, grateful that I had them as long as I had them. Hmm. Um, okay, we're going to speed round you now. Okay. Karaoke? No. Nickname that stuck over your life? Nothing that stuck. I don't think there was uh, anyone that somebody tried to stick that you. Yeah, somebody you tried squir- to call me K Mac at one point. K Mac. Yeah, and uh, yeah, K-Mac. it didn't okay. really stick. Um, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter the arena on? Hmm, that's an interesting question. <laughs> interesting, air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Give me a second. Let me think about this. Sorry, I just totally slowed down your speed round. Well, that's okay. It's a variable speed round. I just enjoy that this question, we've asked this so many times now, that it really has people reflect on themselves because being a wrestler, I mean, your entrance theme song is your persona. It is completely you, like, synthesized. So you think about that music when you're coming out, the crowd, the whole the whole thing. You got pyrotechnics. What You know, what does that look like? Yeah. Uh, you're right. Um, there's a number of songs I've got in my head, but I don't know what they say about me. So I'm, I'm, trying, to, <laughs> I'm trying to make sure I'm thinking through the lyrics before I give you the answer to this song. Chariots of Fire. No words. No, yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, the song I got in my head does not does not speak well for me. So just one second. Um, can I see my interview list here for a second? Yeah, maybe yeah. that'll help me. Yeah, maybe yeah. that'll help me. Ooh, you twisted sister. I saw twisted sister on there. We're not gonna take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I never, I never, I never got to um, interview the lead singer, but JJ French is pretty phenomenal. Um, maybe Kenny Wayne Shepherd, King's Highway. Okay. Your wrestler name could be King. King K-Mac. How's that? King K-Mac. There you go. Um, if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that represented who you are, what would it be? Probably just whiskey straight. Whiskey straight? Yeah. Little. But, but you have to make it a Kyle McCurry drink. Oh, you cut out on me. Say it again. You have to make it a Colin McCurry drink. Oh. You got to somehow specialize it. You've got to make it a cocktail. This is uh, if a bartender friend said he's going to make a drink named after you. What kind of whiskey? We can at least give us what kind of whiskey, I guess. I, I, I've started um, – I've always, I've always liked um, Gentleman Jack, but um, – I don't know. It was never much of a cocktail drinker. I mean, it was. It, it doesn't you know. have to be something you, you just like. Just put it in a, a certain kind <laughs> like, of glass, or you know, we're just trying to make it individual because we're putting together a cookbook. I got gotcha. you. 
Oh, so this is this is actually going to become a thing? Yes. Yeah. Then we're going to have an it event can be in downtown Fort Myers next year where we have all the people come and drink their drinks. Oh, wow. I just announced that on the radio. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> you did. I mean, probably the closest thing would have to be a whiskey sour. I mean, that's what it would have to be. Okay, uh, egg white? No. Okay. You know, basically just... Uh, with the sweet and sour mix and uh, and whiskey, that would be what it is. Yeah, okay. now you got to name it. It's the K Mac. Yeah, the K Mac. <laughs> yeah, he took care of it for me. Um, uh, any kind of music you'll avoid listening to, or songs in particular. Do I avoid listening to anything? I think the answer to that question is if I've listened to something too much. That's when I'll avoid it. So I, I don't know that there's anything that I would immediately say. I'm never listening to it again. But if I've, you know, I think we all do this. We get on a kick. We listen to one song over and over and over again. There'll be a period of time where I'll just be like, I can't listen to that for a while. Uh, so there's nothing in particular that I that I just avoid. Um, if you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet simultaneously, which song would you choose? This really is like our Rorschach personality test portion of the interview, isn't it? That's an interesting... What's your favorite song? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be sound, sounding like I'm picking favorites here, but I just I've always, always loved this song. So I didn't play one of their songs, but the the female trio that I used to represent, Underhill Rose, they had some amazing singer-songwriter kind of music. And... Um, one of their songs from the album um, Something Real is called Sublime Charm. Not necessarily because of the lyrics, but because of the way that song is put together. It is a beautiful song. And uh, and they know that I always like that song. So I would probably say that. Sublime Charm by Underhill Rose. What would your 14-year-old self think of who you are here with us today? I think they would have to, you know, this is probably more uh, deep than you want me to go, but by the time I turned 30, I actually felt like I had achieved much of what I wanted to achieve. I had one of these real, like my 20s were, I got really cool opportunities in my 20s. Um, you know, when I when I worked in television, like I never thought I was going to work in television, for example, and because I, I'd, I'd planned on it as a youngster, and then... Radio became my thing, and I, I, I even avoided TV classes in college. Like I, It was not part of my thing. And then I get offered this job in Charlotte. And then through that job, I got to do everything in racing that I'd ever wanted to do because they became story pitches, right? And, and the, the stories were great. So by the time I turned 30, and you can ask friends of mine, I was at a loss. Like I'd... I had no idea what else life had in store for me at that point. But higher ed had always sort of been something I thought about. So I think as long as my 14-year-old self knew that everything else had happened, I think I think they'd feel pretty good about it. Mm. Um, well, they would. Yeah. But, <laughs> but if, if they're just like, okay, 
He's now working at, at right. higher ed. You got to know the backstory. You got to know the backstory. Understood. Yeah. Um, okay, it's time for you to recommend your three people. One of which you've already we've already had on the show, Andreana yep. Shepard. Andreana Shepard from Wink News. The other two, um, one. I know very well, and I will say has been so instrumental in the university's media relations success of of the last four years, is Greg Tolley, the executive director of the Water School. Greg, in my opinion, is one of the best people I've ever met. So I highly, highly suggest you I'd love you to talk have to him, him on here. I've talked to him about water. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's such a – and a great voice too. Very, very great voice. He should have done radio. And the, the other person that I got to know a bit before he got here and, and have – Started getting to know him better is the new provost for the university, Mark Rieger. Um, really great guy. A lot of lot of cool ideas for where the university could go, and uh, I think you'd enjoy getting to know him. I don't well. believe I've met him yet. So nice guy. We'll, we'll try to make that happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've done it, Kyle. You got any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? No, thanks for doing this. I think it's uh, I think it's a really really interesting idea and something that not many people have thought of. And and I really like the fact that you ask. For specific moments, because this show could easily become, as I think you all even put in the previous stuff, what's your wedding song or whatever, which, you know, who cares? Some yeah. of the best stories we've heard are about almost insignificant moments in some way. Just it's oh, sure. music. You know what I mean? It's just like something about how it all ties together with music. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great concept and I wish you much success, continued success. Well, thank you. Absolutely. We make three-song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Mike Canary is co-creator and host. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is our online content producer and host. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin and Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For our parting tune this week, we're going back about a year to episode 142 with Desiree DiMolina. But I remember, and this is... This overlaps with the same sort of era of being a self-effacing five-year-old walking up the stairs one day because Led Zeppelin was just blasting through the home. Um, In particular, one song, which was Going to California, which is my first song. And my dad was home at the time listening to it, and his door was shut. And I'm like, well, aren't we going to have a dance party if the music is playing this loud? So I creaked open the door, because what five-year-old has the manners to knock, and I caught a visual of my dad sitting at his desk with his head down, just completely absorbed in the moment, um, and very clearly touched. And as a young person, I, I didn't realize that people could be tearful without being sad, um, and then to see my, my father sad, not necessarily sad, just uh, overwhelmed with emotion in that moment. Um, I, maybe not in that exact and precise moment, but after I stepped away and digested that visual, realized the impact that music could have on a person's life and stage and memory. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. I told myself I wasn't going to say this on NPR radio, but you know what I'm saying? I'm trying. I would like to keep it clean.